It is a good morning. Actually, because we're here. That's what makes it a good morning. And the other thing is, God is here. Isn't that good, too? I'm going to read some scripture, and then uh, we'll have a prayer. I'm going to read from John uh, 15, 1 through 11. And in this, Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me, be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. My name is Joe. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm blessed for that. And I'm also an elder here at North Shore Church. And I'd like to take a moment now and just bring us to prayer. Father, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, we sing praises to glorify you. Father, you have given us the blood of Jesus for our salvation. May we know more of him as we study the scriptures. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you by what we have done and had left undone. We ask your forgiveness and that the Holy Spirit will remind us of who we belong to. We thank you for all those who love and teach our children. Our dedicated youth leaders and the youth are looking forward to a future spiritual conference. And they trust the Lord will bless their fundraiser following this morning's service. Father, you have been called, you have called leaders uh, for our community groups and have provided them with all the needs they have and the skills they have, Lord. And we pray that you will encourage others, Lord, as leaders. We need leaders uh, in many areas, Lord, and we need more leaders even with the community groups. We ask for guidance now, Lord, for our feasibility group that is starting to form. Uh, they will be working uh, together uh, with the elders and members and call on the Holy Spirit to help them 
as they uh, represent the membership and look to develop a, a future plan. We pray, Father, that uh, you will be in all of that. Uh, Father God, your church is more than 100 years old, and you have kept the doors of this church open in this community. And you have led a number of pastors to lead uh, the worship services in this church. And we praise you and thank you for Pastor Duncan, who is here with us now. Uh, We pray to you, Lord, that you will protect Pastor Duncan and protect the church in all the evil things that are around us, Lord. We just need your hand to hold on to, to be ready to receive your blessings and also your safety. And we praise you for that. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we continue in Jesus' farewell discourse. It's also called the Upper Room Discourse because he gives much of it in the Upper Room uh, as Acts, as this chapter opens, as Joe read. We come to one of the better-known texts, and frankly, one of the texts that hits on the essence of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It would be hard to overstate how important this text is in communicating What's at the very heart of what it is to be related to Christ as a disciple? When Paul talks about the heart of our relationship with God, he uses the same ideas, but he uses different words. When Paul talks about this same topic, he uses the phrase, in Christ. And he uses that to describe the reality that when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit spiritually and eternally unites the believer with Christ. Okay, Jesus' metaphor about the vine and the branches that Joe read just a few minutes ago is a graphic way of depicting what that union with the Christ and the believer looks like. That's what this is about. This is foundational to the Christian understanding of discipleship. And if believers are to live fruitful Christian lives, we need to understand and increasingly live out our identity as branches that are connected with the vine, Jesus. We need to see ourselves in that kind of relationship with Jesus. That needs to be more and more our sense of identity, who we are. But there's a real challenge in understanding and living out our union with Christ and producing this spiritual fruit, probably a lot of them. But one of them is that in order for us to do this, we have to allow our thinking to be dictated by a paradox, a paradox taught in the Scripture as to how we're to increasingly become fruitful and mature in Christ. Now, what is a paradox? Well, a paradox, two seemingly contradictory truths that are woven together. Okay? It's hard for us to keep a paradox in our mind, and yet that's really important. Keeping two seemingly contradictory things together in our minds isn't easy. The Holy Spirit has to do it. Now this paradox comes into view every time we see the Christian life described in terms of our union with Christ. For instance, Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
lives in me. There you hear that union with Christ language. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I died with him. Union. He lives in me. Union. Okay? There's no paradox there. Clear as crystal. That is, until you get to the next half of the verse, where Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, how do you fit those two things together? Okay, I thought you no longer live, Paul. <laughs> That's what you just said. I no longer live. And yet here you say, the life I now live, I live by faith. See, that captures this paradox that shows itself whenever we're talking about our union with Christ in the Scripture. Living the Christian life involves paradoxically both living as a Christian by faith and not living, but instead having Christ live in us because we've been crucified with him. That's the paradox. Okay? We see a similar paradox as Paul relates this to his own life and the grace of God in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Okay? all about the grace of God. God's grace that was working in and through Paul. God is doing the work. But in the second half of the verse, he goes on to say, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Do you hear the tension there? there that's a paradox. There's tension there. You should feel that tension. Okay? You don't want to go solve the tension by going to one side, it's all Jesus, or, or the other side, it's all me. No, both are true. Both are true. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. That gets at what we're talking about today and why this is hard for us to understand or hard for us to live out, because it's not easy. And this paradox is found all over the New Testament. We could give you 10 or 12 examples of this if we had time. Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches doesn't unlock this paragraph by removing the tension. The tension is there. It's supposed to be there. But Jesus does throw some light on it through this metaphor. The vine-branches relationship, it helps us to think more clearly about ourselves and how we relate to God in living as a follower of Jesus. Okay, so that's what we're going to get into. But before we get into that, there are a couple of important background truths that will keep us from misinterpreting this text, which is easy to do. First, we have to remember that Jesus is using a metaphor here to describe our relationship to him and to the Father. Okay, Jesus isn't a literal vine, we know that, and we're certainly not literal branches. This is a metaphor, okay? And metaphors are graphic images, and Jesus uses this metaphor of the vine and the branches to give us a picture He's taking a snapshot here of the relationship between him and the individual believer. Now, with metaphors in the Bible, we have to be careful not to press the image too far. If you do that with the vine and the branches, it will teach something that's not true. Okay? You, it's like an analogy. You can't press an analogy too far, and you can do that with this metaphor. Second, and more importantly, this metaphor, the vine and the branches, it's drawn from many references to the vine in the Old Testament. Okay? This vine branches image is not one Jesus picks out of thin air. He doesn't choose this particular metaphor at random. 
This was very familiar to the Jews. And if you've read carefully the prophets in the Old Testament, you will know what this is about as well. These disciples knew that in the Old Testament, the vine and the vineyard imagery almost always represents Israel as God's vineyard. Okay? Israel is the vineyard of God. God had called Israel to be his vine and bear his fruit. That is, he called Israel to display his character to the surrounding nations. That's what their job, to be a kingdom of priests, okay? However, in nearly every case in the Old Testament, this image of Israel as God's vine is used negatively to illustrate what a sick and fruitless vineyard God's people were in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5 Chapter 5, verse 7 is one example of this. He writes, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There it is. And the men of Judah are his pleasing planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There it is. Okay? God appointed Israel as his vineyard to bear fruit to the nations, but when he looked for fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness, his vine was bare. In his parables, Jesus too speaks of Israel as the vineyard, and like the prophets before him, he uses that image repeatedly to condemn Israel for the rotten and barren vineyard that it was. Israel was a vineyard whose fruit was either non-existent or rotten. That's consistent through the Old and the New Testament. However, the Jews would have also known from the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets taught that there would be, in the future, another vine. And this vine would be new and fruitful, this vineyard, and it would bear a whole lot of fruit for God. Isaiah 27 looks ahead to this, and it says, In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. There's the promise, right? The Old Testament, this Old Testament forward-looking understanding of the vineyard, that's the backdrop of Jesus' teaching here. This is why Jesus begins the teaching in verse 1 by saying, I am the true vine. Because he's differentiating himself from Israel. He's drawing an implicit contrast between himself as the true and fruitful vine and Israel, the barren and worthless vine. Israel was a fruitless vine that God ultimately condemns for its fruitless idolatries. Jesus, however, is a vastly superior vine to which the nation of Israel pointed. This true vine, Jesus, through his branches, his new covenant people, will, without fail, no possibility of failure, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, fill the whole world with fruit. That's what he's getting at here. When we see this teaching through that Old Testament lens, it really does shed some light on where Jesus is going with this, and it keeps us from misunderstanding this. So with that as background, let's look at this teaching, and I want to find three keys that open the door to faithful discipleship that I think cover all the verses here. Three keys that open the door to faithful discipleship, or three keys to walking faithfully with Christ. The first key and the one we're going to spend the longest on, because it's really the main teaching of Jesus, is this. For the believer, all our spiritual life and fruit come from, or we could say belong to, 
Jesus. For the believer, all our spiritual life and fruit come from or belong to Jesus. This gets at what we were saying earlier about what is Christ's role and what is our role in living the Christian life. It's important that we become as clear as we can on this truth for several reasons. First of all, because this keeps us from believing the lie that the ultimate secret to being a faithful Christian is the exertion of our effort. Trying harder. Exerting more personal willpower to live the way we're supposed to live. This metaphor destroys that lie, if you understand it. Branches don't produce fruit by straining. They produce fruit by being connected to the life-giving vine. Okay? Verses 4 and 5 are clear. As Jesus describes himself as the vine and his followers are the branches on which the fruit is found. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Okay? The only way the branch can bear fruit is if it abides in the vine. That's pretty clear. Without Jesus, the vine, the branch is withered up and fruitless. Now, we know this from our own experience botanically. If you sever a branch from a plant it's eventually going to die because the life is not in the branch. It's in the vine, okay? And the vine imparts its life to the branch. The branch only transmits or carries within it the life and fruit it receives from the vine. It doesn't have any independent life apart from the vine. Likewise, we have no spiritual life we have no spiritual fruit in ourselves. It's only the life of Christ through His Spirit that gives us life and produces His fruit in us. That's where this is here. And Jesus concludes this teaching by giving us an example of what He means. He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. See, there's that union idea again, isn't it? My joy in you and that your joy may be full. Okay? This is very similar to what we saw last time in 1427, where he's talking about his peace. Not joy, but peace there. And he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Okay? This is not some vague alien peace that he's giving us. It's the very peace of Christ. It's his peace. This is the peace we inherit from him, and it's the exact same peace that he experienced when he was on the earth. Likewise here, as it relates to joy. He doesn't intend for us to have joy in a general sense. He says he wants us to abide in him so that his joy would be our joy, that we would enjoy with his joy. Okay? John Piper paraphrases it this way, I have instructed you about abiding in me so that you would enjoy all that I enjoy with the very joy with which I would enjoy it. That's exactly what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It would be unreasonable for us to cut off a branch and expect it to bear fruit. That's a picture of futility. But it's just as ridiculous, just as futile for us to expect to bear fruit simply by exerting more of our own effort or by trying a new discipleship plan or performing other religious works. 
The only way to grow spiritually or bear fruit, the very fruit of Jesus, is to abide in the vine, Jesus. The reason abiding in Jesus is necessary in order to bear fruit for Jesus is because the fruit he intends that we bear is the fruit of Jesus. This is really important. Our spiritual fruit indicates the way in which Jesus shows his character through us, but fruit also includes those people that we, by God's grace, have influenced for Jesus, whether we've led them to Christ or had a Christ-like influence. He's also including that in this understanding of fruit. So our character, Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit, but also those people who we've influenced for Christ in a positive way. Our fruit is what Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, produces in us and produces through us as we abide in Christ. It's no coincidence that love, joy, and peace all of which Jesus mentions in this section of John are the first three of the fruit of the Spirit. That's in Galatians chapter 5. And Jesus teaches us that as we abide in Him, that as we remain in Him, as we trust in Him, as we draw our strength and our satisfaction from Him, His peace, His joy, His love are produced in us by the Holy Spirit as He reproduces those in us and through us. In the second half of verse 9, Jesus tells us, abide in my love. Okay, there's the, there's the trifecta. Just as with peace and joy, he's telling believers to love with his love. Agape is God's love. It's Christ's love. So he's saying, my peace I give to you, my joy I give to you, my love I give to you as you abide in me. This is why Leon Morris, a great New Testament scholar, says, fruitfulness is impossible apart from Christ, but it's inevitable as we preserve vital contact with him. You can't have a wider gap between two things, between something that is on the one hand impossible and something that is inevitable. And the reason is it's inevitable is if we abide in Christ, it's his fruit manifest in us through the Holy Spirit. If we abide in Him, it's inevitable because His fruit is produced in us through the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The acid test of the genuineness of a disciple is the presence of spiritual fruit because the only way a person can bear fruit is if Jesus by the Spirit is living and producing his fruit through them. That's how we prove that we're a disciple because we're producing his fruit. That's a surefire indicator as the Son is showing his love, his peace, his joy, whatever else through the disciple, that glorifies the Father. This is not to say that all believers in Christ will have the same kind of consistency or passion in their fruit bearing. We know that from experience, don't we? But all genuine believers abide in Christ at some level and produce some level of fruit. Another reason disciples must abide in Christ and therefore bear fruit goes back to what we said about the Old Testament prophecies about the vineyard. If Jesus had disciples who never bore any fruit, that would call into question his credentials as the true fruit-bearing vine. He's saying, I'm different than Israel. I bear fruit. That means if you're a branch, you're going to bear fruit. Now, there are different levels of fruit. 
Different levels of intensity and consistency. All of that, of course, begs the question, well, how are we to think about a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, a branch, but who genuinely, genuinely, let's say this is God's opinion, not my opinion, genuinely produces no discernible fruit. Their lives, their passions, their priorities look like just any other unsaved person. They just happen to go to church. They're outwardly nice, moral person. Okay, How are we supposed to think about that? John tells us in his second epistle, 2 John, in verse 9, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. As we'll see later, abiding in Jesus' words, in Jesus' teaching, is the same thing as abiding in Him. We're going to see that. Believers who claim to be in Christ but don't bear any fruit are not His disciples. That's the point he's making here. Now that may sound confusing to us, but one of the repeated themes of John's gospel, and you'll see this over and over and over in John, is that there are people who call themselves believers who are not believers. You see this in John in particular. Let me give you one example in John 2, 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, he saw the signs, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But then he goes on and says, but he did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of humanity. In other words, these were phony believers. The same thing is true in how John uses the word disciples. This is in John's gospel, not necessarily in the other synoptic gospels. In John 6, verse 66, John says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, they were self-professed disciples who stopped following Jesus, which meant they weren't disciples because a disciple by definition is one who follows Jesus. And yet here he says, these disciples stopped following Jesus, which meant weren't real disciples. Okay? It's impossible for Christ to produce fruit in phony disciples because he's not in them. He can't produce his fruit in someone in whom he does not reside by the Holy Spirit. It's these false disciples that are taken away in judgment in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. His purpose is to teach there are no two Christians without some measure of fruit. And he says these, these are in me. He's not talking about conversion there. He's talking about they're associating with me. The context forces us to come to that conclusion. He's certainly not saying that God will remove genuine believers who are not fruitful because this test teaches that genuine believers are fruitful to some degree. Okay? I'm not talking about those seasons by which we kind of stroll away from Jesus. I'm talking about as a rule. That's what he's talking about here. Now, we have to allow warnings like this one in verse 2 to jolt us. That's their purpose, okay? To jolt us into repenting of any lukewarmness that we have. That's the purpose of warnings in the New Testament to believers, to cause us to examine ourselves. There are means of grace for the believer, these warnings, whereby we check. And God uses these warnings to keep us in Christ. That's why these warnings are there. Okay? For a complete absence of fruit, God will eventually cut off that person who in reality is deceived about their faith and throw them out in judgment. Now on the other extreme are those people whose fruit bearing is hindered. 
They're believers, but the fruit bearing is hindered, not because they're lukewarm, but because they're spiritual perfectionists. Okay? A perfectionist is a person who takes pains and gives them to others. Right? I speak as a reforming perfectionist. Okay? These are believers that can have much fruit in their life, but their perfectionism keeps them from identifying it. So they live with a continual and paralyzing sense of guilt and inadequacy. I was reminded of this several years ago. It was actually on a Thanksgiving morning. I was listening to a radio program that happened to be a cooking show. And a younger woman calls in, and she's just frantic. She's very anxious. She's trying to ask Lynn Rosetto Casper what on earth she's supposed to do about her turkey or her stuffing or whatever. She's very keyed up, and it's very clear that she is expecting herself to turn out an absolutely perfect meal her first time. And the host could hear this, and this is an older, very wise woman, and she said, don't let perfection spoil excellence. Okay? That is, it won't be perfect. It never is perfect. But if perfection is what you expect, you may sadly be disappointed over what is really a good meal because your standards were too high. There's some in the church who need to hear that word. When they read this text with its warnings and its strong language, they haul out their spiritual electron microscopes and immediately do an intense fruit inspection of themselves. Okay? And because they're perfectionists, they fail to see the fruit in their life. They see themselves as fruitless when other mature believers who really know them well would say, that person's life has fruit. Of course it has fruit. Notice that God the Father works diligently in believers to increase our fruitfulness. God the Father works diligently. Verse 2 again says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In verse 1, Jesus calls the Father the vine dresser. Okay? So again, we see the entire Trinity involved in Christian maturity. The believer must abide in Jesus to produce his fruit. The Father increases fruitfulness by pruning, and the fruit that is produced by abiding in Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all invested in making a mature disciple. Verse 5 says, the end of this pruning and abiding is that they will bear much fruit. What does he mean by pruning here? How does the Father do this? Well, this is what Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about, and we know that because some of the same words are used. The words that Hebrews 12 uses is not prune, it's discipline, okay? And he's describing this process of increasing our fruitfulness. And he says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. And then verse 10, he continues, For they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness, his fruit, his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit, same word, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pruning is our loving Father's way of bringing correction into our lives 
to cause us to leave our sin and to come to him more fully. And this can happen in a thousand different forms. It may be most directly a word of correction, a rebuke from someone in or outside the church. It may be an enslaving addiction that through our foolishness we've gotten ourselves into and now we're working to get out from under it and finding out how weak we are. It may be a time of financial hardship because we haven't been careful with our money. It may be the loss of a job. It may be being less than a strong witness for Christ at work, and so we lose our job. Now, we have to be very careful here because not all things that happen to us that are bad are disciplinary. Some of them just come to test our faith and to cause us to glorify Christ. But some of the hardships in our life are disciplinary. They're God's pruning us to put off the old man and to put on the new, to repent of our sin and to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness as we're trained by it. Okay? So that's what pruning is. All of us are being pruned today if we're believers in some way. A second key to discipleship, much shorter, is for the believer central to abiding in Christ is the ministry of the Word, prayer, and our obedience. Jesus mentions the word a couple times here. In verse 3, he tells the disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, the word clean is from the same Greek word as the word prune. But the Father prunes, and Jesus says that he has cleansed them through his word. This probably means that by virtue of his correcting influence of his continued inspired teaching, these disciples, except Judas, were clean. They were ready to bear fruit when the Spirit came. Notice, however, the strong connection between the Word of God and prayer in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We get the meaning of this later in verse 16 where Jesus goes into greater depth. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You hear it's almost the same, right? When you put those two verses together, it helps us understand what they mean. What Jesus is saying is, I chose you to bear fruit, and that implies abiding in me and abiding in my words. As my words abide in you, ask whatever you ask, and they'll be my words, because you're abiding in my words. Okay? If my words are abiding in you, then out of that Christ-directed, Christ-saturated, word-saturated heart will flow christ directed, Christ-saturated, word-directed prayers consistent with my name. And when you pray that kind of prayer, the Father gives you whatever you ask. That's his point. If we have his mind and his heart and his agenda and his kingdom priorities, as the word has brought that into our hearts, we're going to be praying according to those things, and God's going to answer them because we're going to be praying in the will of God. Another point we mustn't miss here is that the purpose of prayer is that we bear fruit. The purpose of prayer is that we bear fruit. We pray so that we can see God's will done and thereby produce fruit in the kingdom and glorify God. Verses 9 and 10, he brings in obedience. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in in his love. So he's saying you need to abide in this remarkable love that Jesus has, the same kind of love that the Father has for me. And then Jesus says something curious that is frustrating when you're reading it because it causes us to be a little confused. He tells us that keeping his commandments is a condition 
for abiding in his love. And that's when you scratch your head and go, what's that about? Okay? Just as Jesus met that condition of obedience and abides in his Father's love. So that even makes it harder. The question is, how can God's love, which is, of course, from grace, it's from mercy alone, totally undeserved, how can that be conditioned upon our obedience or anything else we could do? And it's just what we said a couple of weeks ago. One scholar put it this way, continued enjoyment of that love, the love of Jesus, at least in part, at least in part turns on our response to it. Okay, let me repeat that. Continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. This is what we said in chapter 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It makes it sound like your love is conditioned on my obedience. But that's not the gospel. So what can this mean? <laughs> this is important. And what we said two weeks ago is this is just, he's talking about the realities of being in relationship, okay? If, if as a child you have loving parents, but you persist in disobeying them again and again and again, that doesn't withdraw their love for you. You will not experience their affection for you. You will not abide in their love, which is the issue here, because you can't continue to enjoy their love, to abide in their love, when you keep grieving them by your disobedience. That's just the way all relationships work. That's what he's getting at here. Closely related to this is the third key. And finally, for the believer, abiding in Christ brings great joy. We saw this earlier. We're going to look at it again. This, this passage can, if we read it wrongly, can come off as pretty heavy. These warnings and conditions, they can be a bit intimidating to us. But if we get that from the text, we've missed it badly. Because Jesus concludes the section of his teaching in verse 11 with this glorious promise. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Full, not 99.9% of the joy you're supposed to have, 100% of the joy you're supposed to have, you'll have, and it's going to be my joy in you. Notice the relationship between obedience and joy. Jesus has just commanded us to obey so that we can experience his love. Here he tells us that as we obey and experience God's love, we'll know joy. And not just any joy, we'll share in his joy that he receives from obeying the Father. The main take-home message here is pretty obvious, and that is we cannot live a Christian life that is fruitful on our own. We're called to abide, not try harder, remain in Jesus, abide in Jesus, expose ourselves to Jesus, and he produces his fruit in us through the Spirit. So the question here is, are we abiding? Are we abiding in Jesus? If we abide, we will produce fruit. That's an absolutely no exception statement. If we're abiding, you will produce fruit all the time. That's a law. So are we living in his word, praying kingdom prayers? Are we enjoying his joy? Are we loving with his love? Are we living with his peace by the Holy Spirit? Are we seeking to do those things? Are we having people pray for us that we would do those things? We're the branches totally dependent on the vine that we're connected to by the Spirit. When we aren't abiding, maybe we're ignoring God for some reason, or we're trying to serve God in our own strength, from our own initiative, all that energy produces nothing. And no matter how busy we are, it produces nothing in terms of fruit 
produces wood, hay, and stubble, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3. Finally, maybe today God has spoken to you, clearly revealing to you that you don't have a genuine love for Jesus. You've never enjoyed with his joy. You've never loved with his love. You've never known his peace. If that is you this morning, then place your trust in Christ. Confess that you're not united to the vine and that you deserve to be burned and cut away. As you look in faith to Christ for your salvation, he will rescue you. He died so that his blood could cleanse you, so that by his spirit you might be united to him. The spirit will connect you to the vine and you can spend the rest of your life knowing his peace, enjoying with his joy and loving with his love. May God give us all the grace to abide in Jesus so that that might increasingly be the cast of our lives for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious teaching and uh, I just pray God that you would enable it to take 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 root in our hearts. Father, that this would just be part of who we are, that this would be part of our identity, that you would help us to know how we can abide, that you would enable us to have a consciousness whereby we could ask, am I enjoying with his joy? Am I loving with his love? Am I experiencing his peace? Father, we're just so grateful. This really does take the pressure off because, God, we can't, through our own effort, exert enough to produce fruit because we don't have any fruit you are the one who has the fruit jesus so god we just invite you produce the fruit of jesus through us for your glory by the spirit in jesus name amen